to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. The debate over abortion rights has been looming in this country for years, and in early December, the Supreme Court heard arguments about a Mississippi state abortion ban. The case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, is one where the court is taking up arguments on whether abortions performed before viability are unconstitutional. To make sense of the abortion debate and what this decision will mean for the court itself, I've invited Dr. Josh Wilson to join me on the show today. Josh Wilson is a professor and the chair of the political science department at the University of Denver. His research and teaching addresses the abilities of political and social movements to use law in the pursuit of their political ends. He has published two books on abortion politics with Stanford University Press, and he recently co-authored Separate But Faithful, The Christian Rights Radical Struggle to Transform Law and Legal Culture by Oxford University Press with Amanda Hollis-Bruski. Josh, thanks for joining me on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. So I want to begin at the beginning. Well, kind of the beginning. Um, where do abortion rights stand in this country today? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty big question, but a, a good one to clarify, especially given the attention that abortion politics has, have, been, have been receiving over the last couple of years. But um, basically right now, uh, abortion is legal and variably accessible depending on the state that you live in. And so uh, again, the kind of the question here is how far back do you want to go? But um, there's very, so there are variations between states on the ability to access abortion because states since Roe versus Wade have uh, been in positions of where they can regulate abortion in different ways. And so we can basically see this tracking on kind of the, the political orientation of a state. So the more conservative states, socially conservative states have been working to limit access to abortion for decades. Um, and so you can oftentimes find fewer clinics and uh, more hurdles that you have to go over in order to access abortion in some states versus others where um, access is much more readily available. Um, but basically, the idea is that states cannot limit access to abortion um, in a really robust way before viability, but after viability, they can ban access to abortion. And vi viability is the line at which the fetus can survive outside of the womb. There's not an exact date kind of attached to that, but it's usually uh, in the early 20s, so around 23, 24 weeks. Yeah, and I noticed in the Supreme Court arguments the other day, um, there was this, it constantly came up, viability, 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 what is viability? And in this case, if I'm not mistaken, Mississippi has a ban after 15 weeks. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And so I guess the justices are trying to decide if that really meets viability or, or what are they, what are they doing with this 15 week mark exactly? Yeah, so this is where um, it helps to actually understand uh, some court cases that came before this in order to understand what's going on uh, with the Mississippi law and then what it is the court is, is trying to figure out. So the key case to actually think about is Casey, um, which came out in, uh, I want to say 1992. I could be off by a year or so there. But what Casey did uh, was two things. One is it established this line of viability, basically saying that 
you know, before viability, states can't cut off access to abortion, but after viability, they can. Um, and this is a shift from, of course, Roe versus Wade, which is the, the case that most people kind of reference. And Roe versus Wade had this sliding scale of uh, when the state could regulate and on what grounds. So this, this modified that sliding scale and basically gave us this dividing point of viability. Um, the, and so what the court is trying to figure out here is do they wanna stick with viability as a dividing line or not? And there are a couple options here for the court. One is you know, they can reaffirm Casey and say that viability is the line that you can't ban abortion before and thus they strike down the Mississippi law. Most people think that's not what they're going to do uh, given oral arguments and given the composition of the court. So then that means, all okay, right, what will they do if they let the Mississippi law stand? And one option would be to say that this 15 week marker is acceptable, but then that leaves open to the question of why? Right, and, and this is yeah. some of what, what the debate was in the court. The other option that they can do is simply move more aggressively and strike down Casey, strike down Rose, strike down the, the right to abortion. And then you don't have this question of is 15 weeks more legitimate than say viability to allow states to regulate. Yeah, so I what I was hearing in the, in the arguments too is the statement that what we really need to determine or to think about is stare decisis. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that exactly? Yeah, so that is the idea that the court is bound by what it has ruled in the past. And the reason, what, what should be understood about that is these are really questions about what gives the court authority. And here's where we can kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll try to make this as, as quick and painless as possible, but, but where we slip into a little bit of intro to American politics, right? Of, you know, the, the, the court has, as, as commonly said, right? Neither the sword nor the purse. So it doesn't have the ability to tax people to get people to do what they want them to do like the legislature can. And they don't have the sword. They don't have violent force like the executive branch does to get people to do what the executive branch wants them to do. Instead, the court has to convince people to obey it. And, and that's really the core of its power is it needs to be seen as legitimate. And so a whole bunch of different behaviors have basically sprung up around this idea of giving the court legitimacy and thus giving the court authority. And one of the ways that the court strives for legitimacy and authority is by saying, they're bound in various ways. They can't just make decisions because they feel like it, right? Instead, they have to make decisions guided by certain rules or guidelines. And one of those things is stare decisis. So saying, you know, you're not gonna get radical shifts out of the court. You're not gonna get changes based off of whim because our present day rulings are bound in various respects by what we've ruled on similar cases in the past. And so the idea here is we have Roe versus Wade, we have Casey, these affirm the right to abortion. And so stare decisis would say, there is a right to abortion here. And so that should in theory limit what the court can do. That all being said, the court isn't absolutely bound by what it's done in the past. They can overrule past decisions. And that was one of the big debates in those oral arguments are, you know, when do we overrule things what allows for that and how, and if we do it, how do we protect, 
pr protect our legitimacy if we overrule ourselves uh, from the past. So how did we get here? I mean, so you, you've just finished a book with Amanda hollis Bruski uh, titled Separate But Faithful, The Christian Rights Radical Struggle to Transform Law and Legal Culture. How, how did we get where we are now to where we're, the court is considering, I mean, essentially overturning Roe? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. Because um, a lot of people just think about, you know, they, they kind of have this assumption that court cases just happen, right? Yeah. And, and political science research really shows us, no, that's not the case, that, that court cases have to be built. Um, and they're built using a whole range of resources. And so, so again, when you had this kind of where do we start question earlier, this is, this is another <laughs> problem. Like, you know, where do we start with uh, how we explain where we got to today? One line of discussion could be along, you know, how did abortion become such a contentious political issue? Because it wasn't for the vast majority of, of history. So that had to be built. But on the other side of this is, you know, what gets us the court that we have today and what gets us the lawyers who bring those cases and, and the arguments that they, that they mount. And so if you go down that road, um, again, there's a couple different stories you can tell here, but, but the one that Amanda and I um, tell in our book, it isn't specifically bound to abortion politics, but really is about uh, Christian conservative litigation generally. And so the, the quick story here is, you know, we really need to, to back up to the mid 20th century to what's sometimes referred to as the rights revolution. This is when I talk with students and I say like, you, you know what this is because this is kind of the greatest hits album of the Supreme Court. Because most people don't follow the court, but if they know anything about- <laughs> I love it. Cases, the greatest yeah. hits album, that's great. Right, like, like yeah. Brown versus Board of Education is their chart topper here, right? <laughs> and, and everybody <laughs> kind of knows that one. And then you can start throwing in other ones here as well. Um, but we have this period, right, that, that covers a good chunk of the 20th century. And most people think about this with the Warren Court, um, where you get this sudden explosion in cases around civil rights and civil liberties. And um, the conservative response to that was, was typically to call it illegitimate, was to say that these were activist judges exceeding the bounds of what they should do. And they were legislating from the bench. And so there was this rejection of using courts for political ends. That started to change in the 1970s and 80s and into the 90s. And so what you see here is if, if we think about conservatives as being um, kind of a big tent, a coalition where you have say business conservatives and libertarians and religious conservatives as three main groups. The, if we draw a division there between secular and religious conservatives, secular conservatives in the 1980s started to recognize that they really needed to be much more active in the courts because even if they won legislative branches and they won executive branches, if they didn't win in the courts, whatever they produced could be shot down or limited in various ways. And, and then also a lot of what conservatives were opposed to were ideas that were developed in the courts. So again, how do you fight them? You can also fight them in the courts with future cases. And so secular conservatives started really paying much more attention to how they could be a force uh, in the courtroom in the 1980s. And this is where you get the birth of say the Federal Society, which is now getting much more public attention uh, as a kind of a way of organizing and connecting conservative lawyers to bring cases and, and a bunch of other things. 
It's also where you get explicitly conservative public interest legal organizations. So like answers to the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, right? And you know, groups of lawyers who will litigate explicitly kind of conservative cause cases. And then later, uh, starting in basically the 1990s, you begin to get religious conservatives, Christian conservatives, recognizing the same things, that they needed to develop their litigation resources as well. And so you see same sort of things happening on with Christian conservatives that you saw with secular conservatives a decade prior. So you the, the biggest thing here is you get the creation of Christian conservative public interest legal organizations. Amanda and I also look at the creation of Christian conservative law schools to create future lawyers, right? So you get this whole kind of surrounding network that's built. And a good part of the foundation of the Christian conservative legal movement is rooted in abortion politics. So this is where we can kind of, I know I've, I've laid out kind of a long story here. Uh, it's much longer, I'm trying to condense it as much as possible. But, but what circles us back to abortion politics is that one of the things that made Christian conservatives realize that they needed litigation resources were court cases that they were facing in the 1980s and 90s. And what you, you know, if you go back in abortion politics and if, if people in the audience know about Operation Rescue, right, these are large scale kind of social protest movements showing up at clinics with the idea that if we can't get the government to shut down clinics, we can shut down clinics by putting our bodies between those trying to access the clinics and the clinics themselves. So you sometimes get these large, very dramatic uh, surroundings of clinics where people you know, lock themselves to fixed objects or invade clinics and lock themselves to things, all with the purpose of blocking women from being able to access those clinics. Not surprisingly, that resulted in court cases. And early in those movements, they didn't have organized lawyers. Oftentimes what I heard through interviews was, you know, the same church that would help organize members to go work with Operation Rescue, the next week would ask who in this church, who in the congregation is a lawyer and can represent our fellow congregants who have been arrested, right? And you'd find, you know, some of the, the people that I talked to were, say, lawyers who did wills and trusts. So this was completely outside of their legal expertise, but then they get pulled into the movement through kind of similar mechanisms. And then as this goes on, you get state legislatures writing laws, regulating protests that can go in front of clinics. That again, leads to more court cases, but also calls for different kinds of lawyers. And so through this experience of the anti-abortion movement with the courts, it really helped the Christian right recognize that they needed more and better organized lawyers. And that helped fuel the creation of these firms in the, in the 90s and, and since. And that all kind of comes together uh, with the, the cases that we see now with Dobbs. And then there's a, a whole nother line here that we didn't even talk about, but I know I've been talking for a long time, but it's about the efforts to change the bench too. So not just changing the lawyers and the arguments they make, but changing the audience that they're making that argument to. Yeah. So let me pause for just a moment. Uh, for those who are just now joining us, hi, this is Red, White, and Confused, and I'm Heather Evans. Uh, you're joining in today, listening to a conversation uh, between me and Dr. Josh Wilson, who is professor and the chair of the political science department at the University of Denver. We've been chatting about the Dobbs case that has been in front of the Supreme Court that everyone is expecting them to rule on this coming summer. At least that's that's what I'm hearing is that it will be later in the spring and early summer. 
Um, and so we've been chatting a little bit about kind of how did we get here? And, and you just mentioned, Josh, that, that, that what you were just discussing about, you know, finding lawyers and, and knowing that this is going to happen in the courts, that's one piece of the puzzle. But then the second piece is the makeup of that court, the makeup of the Supreme Court. So did Trump's presidency really lead us here? Yeah, no, so Trump's presidency is really remarkable in terms of the courts and in terms of the story because it is such a pivotal moment. Um, so there's a longer kind of recognition by some kind of insiders within the Christian right, within the anti-abortion movement of the need to pay attention to the Supreme Court and the need to pay attention to uh, confirmation hearings um, with the Supreme Court to try to get a court that will be friendlier or receptive to anti-abortion arguments, right? And a, a real big thing to notice here is to, to flash back to essentially same time, but in 2016. So, um, you know, we had the buildup to the presidential election between, you know, Clinton and Trump, but we also had a major U.S. Supreme Court case about abortion, uh, Whole Women's Health, which is out of the state of Texas. And the court, as we were expecting, um, with, with the Dobbs case, we, with major cases, they typically come out in June. And, um, you know, same thing happened with Whole Woman's Health, is that the court ruled in the June before the presidential election. And it was a really remarkable ruling because it was such a pro-abortion rights ruling that the court gave. And that coupled with everybody predicting that Hillary Clinton was gonna win the presidency made it look like conservatives and the anti-abortion movement were gonna be political outsiders for the foreseeable future. Right? The another thing to kind of remember from this point in time is Justice Scalia had died and the Republicans who controlled the Senate were refusing to hear confirmation hearings for a replacement by President Obama. So there was this open seat on the court. It looked like, so A, the court had just made a strong abortion rights ruling. B, it looked like Hillary Clinton was gonna win the presidency and C, once she did, she was gonna be able to appoint a new justice to the bench to replace Scalia, which would help build this liberal majority on the court that would then be there for as long as those justices remained alive, right? Or until they retired. Uh, then we get November and Trump wins. And so there's a massive kind of whiplash with um, abortion politics because now change everything and put a Republican president in that, uh, in that seat who then gets to fill Scalia's seat and then subsequently has more seats and is able to create a supermajority on the Supreme Court of conservatives. Um, and that was incredibly invigorating for the anti-abortion movement. Uh, they went from thinking they were gonna be political outsiders for possibly decades to come to now they have the court that they've always wanted. And you see a real response in conservative state legislatures starting to produce laws like Mississippi's that's uh, issue in Dobbs, where they really began pushing the limits of what they could regulate in abortion because they knew they had a receptive Supreme Court. Yeah. And so, you know, a couple weeks ago when this case was being heard, um, Justice Sotomayor said that the court risks losing their legitimacy. 
said, quote, will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? So do you believe that the legitimacy is on the line here in this particular case? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yes, <laughs> it is a, a, a quick answer, yes. But then there's a lot of nuance kind of underneath that. Um, and the reason why I'd say yes is, well, one, as I, as I referred to earlier, most people don't pay attention to the U.S. Supreme Court, right? Like the, the day in, day out isn't really well covered in the press. People usually can't name who's on the Supreme Court. That really changes in the Trump era because those confirmation hearings were so uh, contentious, like specifically thinking here about, well, it starts off with Justice Scalia's seat being left open, hugely politically contentious, automatically makes people much more aware of of the US Supreme Court. And then we get this reconfiguration of the court and then the highly contentious uh, confirmation hearing of Justice Kavanaugh, followed by the really exceptional and incredibly rushed confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett to replace a liberal icon in Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So suddenly the court goes from this kind of marginal institution that the press and the public don't pay a lot of attention to, to suddenly being a central institution that is highly politicized in kind of the public view and, and a lot of people are paying attention to it. And you can even see kind of precursors here with cases like Citizens United or Bush versus Gore. These are moments building up to this where people have been paying more attention to the court, but then it kind of ebbs and flows in terms of like the, the questions about court legitimacy and so forth. But we have a really punctuated moment here because you get the confluence of all these things, of this building public attention around the court and also the building public attention towards abortion. And what I mean by that is social conservatives have long been invested and highly mobilized by abortion politics, but it's been kind of a second order interest for most democratic and progressive voters. That's another thing that's changed dramatically over the Trump years is that while Trump was the president, you can watch polling data where democratic voters abortion starts to rise up dramatically in their list of kind of most important political issues. So you have that coming to a head in Dobbs. So you have rising interest in the court meeting rising interest in abortion politics, which makes a lot of public attention on the court. And if the court were to overrule Roe versus Wade or otherwise act dramatically, that will be seen. And the easy way to interpret that is it's all politics. These are Republicans doing what Republicans do. There is no, and that then leads to the court is political, which means Mm -hmm. the court is illegitimate. So that's the real risk there. Yeah. And I noticed your article recently about the, uh, the percentage of Americans who approve of this institution, even before this particular decision, it's dropping, correct? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's, I want to say it's at an all time low, uh, since polling data has been done on the on the US Supreme Court. And again, it's because people are paying more attention and the news that they're getting about the court, right? If what they knew about the court before was that it produced things like Brown versus Board, right? That helps build its reputation, right? Yeah. But now if what the, atten- what the attention the court is receiving is over these confirmation hearings and these highly contentious cases and these political issues, 
that's a very different way of understanding the court. And so you can understand this drop in approval rating. So let's say that, um, hypothetically speaking, they do decide that the uh, the ban is not unconstitutional. Um, and so they actually rule in the way that a lot of people think that they're going to rule. Let's say they overturn the, the two former cases. How will that affect elections next year? That's a really good question. Um, and there's, again, there's kind of two big forces that you can see moving against each other. One is right now the way that a lot of the narrative kind of around the coming elections is we have the history of what usually happens in midterms in terms of the out of party or out of power party usually makes a comeback. Um, and then that you couple that with real concerns about inflation, about kind of never ending pandemic and so forth. And you get a lot of voter dissatisfaction that all goes in the way of kind of Republicans um, doing well in the midterms. But if the court really moves aggressively against abortion rights, that is a very strong narrative for Democrats to run on. Um, and so I would immediately expect this to be a, a very big issue for Democrats and, and be a better issue for Democrats to run on than Republicans. But then the question becomes, is it strong enough to counter the other forces, right, of, of COVID, of inflation and so forth? Uh, but it'll it'll it will definitely become a political issue in those elections. Yeah, and I expect a lot of women to be lacing up their tennis shoes and heading back to Washington D.C. if that were to happen. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So thank you for joining me today on the show, and thank you to everyone for listening. If you missed any piece of this, uh, the show again is Red Wine Confused. You can listen to it again on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.